It would be great if you could just quickly turn in your Bibles to, um, to Matthew chapter 5. It's always good to have a dad in the room, isn't it? <laughs> Please turn in your Bibles. We're going to open up Matthew 5 again. So page 1426, if you've got the brown Bible in your hand. And if you don't own a Bible and would like one, then the Bible in your hand is yours to keep. Please do um, feel free to take that. Um, we're going to read down to verse 9. So, little context, just that this is the beginning of one of the most famous public discourses, sermons that's ever been spoken in the history of the world, the Sermon on the Mount. It's full of pithy and memorable things that even people who've never read the Bible, many have heard them because um, the wisdom of Jesus was so condensed into such extraordinary sayings. And we're starting here just looking through um, these early sayings which are called the Beatitudes. It's where Jesus says, blessed are they, blessed are they, meaning um, this is a person whose life is, is fulfilled, is happy, um, has a fuller life, the kind of abundant life that Jesus um, talks about and promises for people. So let's read together. It says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So we're going to be thinking about this last one today, Bless, the last one that I read anyway. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And um, if you've been following along with what we've been saying so far, there's a definite way in which these Beatitudes progress in thinking. They really do describe the process through which a soul must go in order to be reconciled and to come to know God. And so we talked about the, the extraordinary... Um, humility that people need to experience when they recognize that before God, they have nothing to offer, to be poor in spirit, to be humbled before him, and to become meek in his presence. But really, these, these later Beatitudes begin to change the focus. It's not so much looking at um, what's going on in your heart, which is obviously incredibly important, but if you're a changed person, if God has done anything in your life at all, then there ought to be some kind of result, shouldn't there? There ought to be something that shows itself. And that's really what this beatitude is about. It shows one of the clear marks of what happens in a Christian when they have experienced the power of God in the gospel. And it has to do with this idea of being a peacemaker. So we're going to be thinking about that. But when you consider the problems in the world today, I think it's fair to say that not in just in a kind of Miss World way, but I think that there is a, a problem with a lack of peace, isn't there? And, yeah, world peace. There's a problem there, isn't there? At, at one extreme, at one, um, extreme we, we are constantly being grieved in our hearts when we see um, the extraordinary violence that's being perpetrated against, um, against other people in, in the Middle East and in 
um, civil wars that are ongoing in African nations and people who are fleeing from them and drowning in the Mediterranean as a result. This world is undoubtedly broken. And then at the much more bizarre and... um, I don't even know how to categorize it, but at the strange end, there's, there's all the stuff that you just see online. All the, all the uh, comments and um, the, the Twitter stuff. I, did, did, I don't know if you guys heard um, about Sue Perkins, the, the wonderful host of the Great British Bake Off, which I've never seen, I promise. It doesn't interest me in the slightest. But um, she's a well-known popular celebrity. She had to leave Twitter about a week ago because rumors began to circulate that Sue Perkins was going to take over from Jeremy Clarkson on Top Gear. And what then resulted was a number of death threats to Sue Perkins via Twitter. And she, she said, well, one person wrote about it. She, they said, say what you like about the Ayatollah Khomeini, but at least when he issued a fatwa, which is a death sentence, you could be confident that he was properly cross. And then she went, Sue Perkins said, this morning someone suggested that I ought to burn to death. Do they have to go straight in with the fiery death? And now, I find this stuff utterly fascinating because for a long time, a lot of people have been saying um, that, that humans are basically good and that we, we, we kind of get corrupted by various environmental factors. You have never spent any time online if you genuinely <laughs> believe that to be the case. All you have to do is choose any random video on YouTube and then just watch the comments unfold. You just need to go on any celebrity's Twitter profile and look at the replies, all these things, and you begin to get an insight into the darkness so that people is in the human heart. And in one sense, it is slightly comedic because you've obviously got these pasty-skinned kids in their bedroom saying death threats to random celebrities. But at the other end, there's something very disturbing about it, that it's an insight into the human heart. And what it reveals to me is that there is a very definite need for peacemakers in the world. Now, I'm talking about something at the very silly end there, and we've also referenced the very darkest stuff that's happening in the world, but essentially it's all showing the same thing. This planet and the humans that inhabit it are broken, and that there's a craving, a desperate need for peace to um, be enjoyed here. And so the question then comes, well, what part do, do Christians have to do with that? What is, what is our calling? And uh, how does this beatitude address that? And I think, in many ways, this beatitude captures something of the bigness of the Christian's call. I don't know when you think about your life, what you think you are here for. I would hope that all of you have some sense of what the answer to that question is. But what, what do you think you're here to do? What's the purpose that drives you in life? Now, I think this beatitude captures something of the bigness of what we as Christians are called to be and to do in this world. And I hope you'll see it. But we need to begin here. We need to begin by understanding a little bit about the kind of the theological foundation upon which our calling is built. And it begins with this idea that God... (laughs) Backing track just kicked in at the right moment there. God is a God of peace. Now, I don't know, you've probably read these words many times, but there's a few times in in the New Testament, particularly in Paul's letters, where Paul talks about God and he said he just calls him the God of peace. He says at the end of Romans 15, he says, may the God of peace be with you all Amen. And what on earth does it mean? 
I think it means this, first of all, that God is himself at peace. And when you think of God, how do you imagine him? What do you fill in when you think about God in terms of um, his kind of, I don't know if you can, it's even appropriate to talk this way, it's certainly not typical or theological to do so, but the emotions that maybe you, you perceive God to have. And the answer is that the Bible says God is a God of peace. When, when God made the world, Hebrews 4 talks about how, and Genesis obviously as well, talks about how he, he worked and worked in the six days and then he entered into rest. And there's an invitation to, to, for believers to enjoy the rest of God. But the point there is theological. God is at rest. He enjoys peace. Now why? Because when you think about it, you can only experience a lack of peace because of you, the finiteness of, of your humanity. The things that steal peace from our hearts are anxieties, aren't they? But we only experience anxiety because we have uncertainty. We don't know what's going to happen in the next 30 seconds. We don't know if Brandon's phone is going to go off again and interrupt the, uh, the sermon or whatever. We don't know. So we experience anxiety. We start to sweat and worry about these kinds of things. <laughs> yeah. We, um, we have guilt because of sinfulness in our heart, and that robs us of peace, doesn't it? We have fear um, of the future, fear of people, uh, fears that, that, that when you walk into to, to the company of others, um, maybe your heart rate races a little bit because there's a slight, you might feel a slight tension inside. You don't know what people think of you. You don't know how to impress people. We have fear. We have the fear of death that hangs over us um, because of our limited nature. Now, when you think about this, it it all has to do with our limitations, the reason that we don't have peace. But God is unlimited. He's not affected by these things. He doesn't have guilt because he's without sin. He doesn't have uncertainty, which leads to anxiety, because God isn't surprised by anything. It's not as though God can be taken unawares by events as they unfold in the world. The Bible paints a much bigger picture of who God is than that. It says he sits in the heavens and laughs. That there is joy in God. That there is a peace in who he is in his core being. So God is himself a God of peace. And then I would want to say this. that Out of that flows the second idea that any peace that we enjoy has to come from him or else it's not real and it's not lasting. You could even say it's fake. Now, I know that that is um, a pretty strong thing, case, that pretty strong statement to make, but I get it from this little passage that Jesus, where Jesus is speaking to his um, apostles not long after he dies and is gone and resurrected and leaves them, but he says to them, and you imagine these words must have rung in their heart in John, in John 14. It says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. I think we can infer from that that Jesus is saying that there's a, there's a peace that the world seeks to enjoy, but it's not the kind of peace that he has. And that the peace that Christ has is of a different quality, a different thing altogether. It's much more comprehensive, it's much deeper, it's much more lasting. Now I think this is incredibly important for us to think about because when, when you look at society at the moment, One of the things that strikes me is that there is such 
a yearning for peace. I think so many of the, the efforts and labors that people are, are, are going about in their life is in, in pursuit of this sense of peace in the heart. We can also think of it as joy, but it's also this peace, this shalom, this well-being, this sense of fullness and of completeness in life. It has to do with health. It has to do with joy. It has to do with a settledness in your spirit. I was just reading this morning about how over the last 40 years or so, um, ideas have begun to creep into um, Western culture that have come from Eastern religions like Buddhism and Hinduism, particularly Buddhism, this, this thing called mindfulness. And now you don't have to scroll far on any online mo- magazine like the Fast Company or whatever to find articles about mindfulness and meditation. Now what is it that, what's at root there, you ask yourself, and it's this, that, that people feel stressed out and they feel ill at ease with themselves and they feel ill at ease with others and there's this there's an effort to, to grab anything which will give me peace in the heart. C went to a spa just a couple of weekends ago, and there were a couple of celebrities there. Why do people pour good money, lots of money, into going to these, these places? The answer is because in pursuit of peace. People spend a lot of money to jump into... Yeah, they spend a lot of money to jump into some mud or to, to be massaged, which I think is bizarre as a man. You know, I, it's inappropriate if another man massages me, and it's even more inappropriate if a woman does it. So don't do it. It just seems just wrong. But people are in pursuit of peace, aren't they? You think about the massive um, upswell. One of the parties in this area that is um, standing for election is the, um, they call themselves sister, and it's to do with um, it's to do with the legalization of cannabis. Now, what at root is that all about? Um, people make all kinds of arguments, but at root is this, that some people find, can only find peace when they're puffing a joint, right? And that people have this, this turmoil inside that can only be calmed. I was reading an article by a guy not so long back who said that for the last, I think, 15 to 20 years, he smoked marijuana every day of his life. And while he's a creative and he's a writer, he said, it dulls my mind and I enjoy it, but I'm torn. He said, I can't go long without it before I feel this restlessness to want to to smoke it again. And I asked myself, what is that indicating? If that's a symptom, what is the cause? The answer is that try as you may, you won't find peace without God. My peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. I don't care how careful you are to meditate while smoking marijuana, whilst having a mud bath. It won't won't ultimately give you lasting peace, will it? So here's my first thing. That God is a God of peace. And that that peace, he's the only way to get peace but that he also offers it to people. God owns the patent on peace, but he's, he's offering it to people. That's the message of the Bible. Now, turn with me to Ephesians 2. In Ephesians 2, there are some verses which really just capture this whole idea and, um, and bring it to a focus for us, that God is offering peace. Well, just read verse 13 to 17. It's on page 1704. 
Now listen to every, word, every reference to peace and all the concepts about peace that come across in these verses. It says this. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off, he's talking to Gentiles, which is most of us in this room, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Far off from God, brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. Who has made us both, that's Jew and Gentile, made us both one. And has broken down in his flesh, in his body, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. He's talking about the rebuilding of society. So making peace and might reconcile us to God. This is the language of peace, friends. In one body, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility, killing the war, killing the fighting. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. Now this is what I'm trying to drive at. That the God of peace, who is at peace in himself, has looked down upon the world and sees the turmoil that sin has created and he offers peace to mankind. And the peace that he offers is a lasting peace that affects us on three levels. The first level that affects us is that it brings peace with God. That's what Paul's saying here. And it says in verse 16 that he might reconcile us both to God. I think a lot of people don't grasp that the, the seriousness of what the Bible says about Our situation, when we don't know God, it's not just that you're indifferent. It's not that like Switzerland, you're neutral. It's that you are an enemy to God. That's how the Bible puts it. And that if you're an enemy, you exist in hostility towards him and he towards you as well. That while the Bible says that God loves mankind, it also says that he has an anger and even a hatred towards us in our sin. And that that is the root cause of all that goes wrong, the lack of peace. So Paul puts it like this, that when God comes to offer peace, he's offering reconciliation first with himself. Now when you think about what the word peace means in the biblical mind, this word shalom in the Hebrew, it has to do with wholeness, it has to do completeness. The implication is you cannot enjoy or experience wholeness without knowing the God who made you and loves you. That's one dimension. A result of that is that you can experience peace in yourself. All the stuff we've been talking about, the anxieties, the fears, the stresses and strains of life, this is a result of not knowing God, but it it results in the turmoil in the human heart, in the human spirit. And the biblical peace is not just peace with God, as so that he becomes your friend and not your enemy. But it's God wanting to come and touch and heal your soul. So that you're not finding peace in the left and the right and all the things around you. It's not Netflix that's going to give you peace. It's not earning so much money that's going to give you peace. It's not getting into that perfect relationship that's going to give you peace. That God wants to give you peace because he can come and heal your soul. He can take away the guilt. He can take away the shame. He even takes away the fear. The promise of the gospel is that God wants to take away fear from your life. Dominated, of course, by the fear of death. And then a third dimension of this this is that it creates peace with others. Doesn't this come through so clearly in what Paul's saying here? 
how he says in verse 15 that by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. When you ask what is the solution, God's solution to conflict in the world, his answer is by creating a family on earth. A new family. One new man is called in the Bible. And he's talking here about the church. God wants to bring peace between relationships. So we look around in this room and we see friends who are from nations that once fought each other. But I can't actually see any Germans. Are there any Germans in here? <laughs> no. One day there will be Germans in here. And then I'll be able to preach this with even more passion. But uh, one new man. One new man. That God is overcoming the racial boundaries and the societal and status boundaries. We've got guys here who work in the city. We've got guys like me who grow long beards and sit at our desk and read books. And we've, got, we've, got, we've got diversity in this room. And it speaks about the one new man in Christ Jesus. We are all different. Praise God for that difference. God is bringing peace between brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, all of that was just to lay a foundation for you. And what I'm going to say is going to be a bit more brief now because I think that's the most important stuff to grasp. What flows out of it then is this, that if God is the God of peace, then this beatitude means this, that God has made us to be his peace envoys on the earth. Now, I think that probably when you first read this beatitude, you probably think in a slightly more narrow sense that what he's talking about here is... Um, being a peacemaker is just sort of like when your mates are having a little bit of an argument, you step in quickly and help reconcile them. And it does include that. It's really important to understand that just normal day-to-day relationships are within the scope of what Jesus is talking about here. But it's much, much bigger than that. Turn to 2 Corinthians 5. It's on page 1687. I want to read a few verses there for you to grasp something of what how the New Testament talks about this call to be peacemakers. 2 Corinthians 5, we'll read from verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. This is the message which controlled Paul's ministry. That God wants to remake humanity. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. He says, the old has passed away, behold, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us. There's this language again. Reconciliation, peace, bringing away, doing away with hostility. Reconciled us to himself and gave us, listen, this is the focus. Gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting, entrusting to us, the message of reconciliation, entrusting to us to become peacemakers. Therefore, he says, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. The idea is that God has laid out a peace treaty. And all that's required is for people to hear the terms of that treaty. They can either accept it or reject it. But in order for them to hear it, they have to be these people that Paul calls ambassadors. 
Dan's dad was an ambassador. It involves going and living in other countries and negotiating trade deals and extreme times of conflict, potentially even peace between nations. And he's saying to us as Christians, you're ambassadors. The world out there needs to hear what God wants to do for them as individuals and on this planet as a whole. And you have an an entrusted responsibility before God to be an ambassador to carry this message into the world. That is a sacred trust. This is what you are called to do. That's why I began with that question. But friends, it's such a big calling, as I hope you'll see as we just carry on here. It has to do with helping people, first of all, come to a place of peace with God. Now, as I said earlier, this implies that without God, we are enemies to Him. That there is no neutrality. And I know that to say such a statement is to say something that people find utterly distasteful and shocking. Because it's to say that God is against you unless you turn to Him. And many, many Christians have sort of abandoned this idea. Do you remember from your history books how um, in the 1930s, as the, the Nazis were beginning to get more powerful and were beginning to get more aggressive, um, building up a military war machine in Germany and um, increasingly anti-Semitic, and also the messages that were coming were very strong, there were, there were two different camps. There was the camp of um, a man called Winston Churchill, who at the time was not prime minister, but who was, who was saying, we need to watch out for this guy, Hitler. He's dangerous. And then there was the camp of a man called Neville Chamberlain, who was prime minister. And in about 1937, Neville Chamberlain, leader of the Liberal, liberal de- Democrats, one reason why you should never vote Liberal Democrat. It's a joke. I don't really care who you vote. Just don't... I don't know why I say that. Uh, yeah, you don't vote for the Cannabis Party. I can say that. Can't I? Um, Neville Cham- Chamberlain went to see Hitler, and he came back, and he got off the plane, and he waved the piece of paper in the air and said, peace in our time. He called it the policy of appeasement. And obviously... Egg was on his face, just to say the least, within a couple of years when Hitler invaded Poland and everything went wrong. Now, the purpose, it's kind of a flawed illustration in one sense, because I don't want to draw any wrong comparisons here. But in the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophets are frequently reprimanded by God for preaching a message that goes, peace, peace, and God says, when there is no peace. He means that they go around telling everyone, it's okay. God's not angry with you. God's not your enemy. God's not going to punish you. God's not going to take any notice of your sin. It's all, it's all done away with peace. It's just peace, guys. They were kind of the, the proto-hippies of the Judean world. And God says to them that they're sinful prophets. They're not speaking his word. It says it many times in the prophets. Now, this is so important for us to grasp as Christians, that for us to be peacemakers does not mean that we come purely with a message of what you could call appeasement, but rather that there is something of a bite to our message, that it has a sweetness and an element of powerful 
deep confrontation. Let me read to you these verses that are so famous from Isaiah 52 where he talks about this. He says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Now, you don't have to look at many feet to realize that feet are not the prettiest part of our body. But somehow, I think when God's praising the feet of those who bring good news, he's saying even the ugliest parts of you can become utterly beautiful when you bring the good news of the gospel. And he says this, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. This verse is taken up in the New Testament as a summary of what of the calling of Christians to be those who carry the good news to people. But what I'm trying to put across to you is that the message of peace is not just a message of love, love, it's all okay, but rather a message that confronts people. He goes on in that same passage and says, Depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. To preach peace is not a pacifism. And it's not an appeasement, and it's not an easygoing thing. It's to confront people with, with a sense of an ultimatum, really. And this is something people find difficult to swallow, but it's so, so important for the Christian to be utterly convinced of. That with the invitation, there is also the fear of God. People rarely ever turn to God unless they feel the fear of Him, unless they feel the dread of what they've done wrong. So when we are preaching peace and we come as peacemakers, ambassadors bringing this this treaty towards people, we do it in the knowledge that there is a desperate need that people receive this message and do so urgently and do so without delay. So that's one dimension of what it means to be this ambassador, this peace envoy. The other dimension, though, is that so much of this spills over and affects the world in, in untold, unpredictable ways. What do I mean? Well, the church sometimes is thought of as a kind of lifeboat. There are certain sort of views people have of the end times where they think it's just going to get worse and worse and worse, and Christians are just going to be huddled into their little sort of nuclear bunkers, just um, escaping the tribulation, and just grab as many people as possible to be safe while things get a little bit hairy out there on the surface of the planet. And that kind of mentality just says that the only thing that's important for the Christian is to, is to share the good news and confront people, and anything else beyond that is all pointless, because the world is going to burn, and it's all going to be lost and gone forever. But I think when you see the biblical message and the optimism and the hope of what Christ is trying to do in the world, that he is called the Prince of Peace, and that his peace doesn't just affect his own people, that there is a kind of spilling out overflow of what Christ does through his people on this, on this planet, in our cities, in our neighborhoods. It begins by God making a community of peace. And that's something that we have to quite literally fight, well, not literally, but you know what I mean, fight for, that we are... We aggressively defend the peace of this community, that the church has to be a society of peace, that one new man. But it doesn't just concern us. It spreads. It begins to invade the city and the regions and the nations in which we live. 
And what I'm trying to do here is to help you understand that this call to be a peacemaker is the driving force, the motive, the the fuel that goes behind the things that you do in the world in Christ's name to do good for him. It's put like this in Jeremiah 29, where where God is, Jeremiah is talking to the, um, well, God is talking directly to the exiles who are in Babylon, and they're, they're Jewish people who've been put into a foreign, foreign land, and they want, all they want is just to go home. And the temptation is just to hang on in there like, like those kind of you know, end times bunker Christians and do nothing to benefit the world around them. And what God says through Jeremiah is this. He says, seek the welfare of the city. Now that word welfare is actually the word shalom, peace. Seek the peace of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, in its peace, in its well-being, you will find your welfare, your peace, your well-being. God's people, while we are called primarily to announce a message that confronts people, that is the dividing line between man and man, between woman and woman, between one person and another. By being ambassadors of peace, our, our call is much bigger than that. It begins to infiltrate everything we do. So, and it's all about the glory of Jesus, the Prince of Peace. This is the motive that lies behind the reason why you work. You work because you are a peacemaker. Because by, by working by engaging in industry, by doing something productive, by studying in order to work, because you're not yet working, you're just sort of uh, living off us at the moment, but one day you'll get there. <laughs> by, by studying in order to work, the, the whole driving force is that you will become a peacemaker in the world and that there will be a leavening effect of your life, that while you're here to call people to, gospel, to the gospel and to repentance, you're also here. The overflow, the outspill of your life is that you're a peacemaker. You want to affect good in people's lives. To bring shalom to the world in which we live. A wholeness, a joy, a completeness. Now, I don't know if people can't experience it without repentance and coming to Jesus. But there is so much good that, the, that Christians can do in this world. And it's motivated by this. Christ's glory as we become peacemakers. This is what lies behind our charity. The word charity just means love. It's loving your neighbor. The very the essence of what charity is. And it's being peacemakers in the world. There's much more we could say on that. But I want to bring it round to our last point. God is a God of peace. We are called to be envoys of peace, peacemakers. But what Jesus goes on to say in this beatitude is that that then we will carry the family likeness. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now note that he says called. He doesn't mean you will become a son of God. It doesn't mean that you will become a child of God by being a peacemaker. What it means is that This is a stamp on your life. This is a characteristic. This is a family likeness that when people look at you, they will see a child of God because of this. When Seth was born, the very next day, I went back to the hospital. And, uh, well, the the moment he was born, I was like, whoa. He was chubby. He was fat. He he was pink and 
I, you don't know your child when they're born. That's the weird thing. Nobody tells you. you. You don't know them. You've got to get to know them. And there's just this, this child that's just arrived in the world. And anyway, that's all irrelevant because what I'm trying to say to you is the next day I went back to the hospital and took a photo of him. And as you do, I put it straight up on Facebook so that the world could um, meet Seth. And uh, immediately the comments began flying in. Wow, he looks nothing like you. <laughs> Partly because... Because he was so overweight, his eyes were even smaller. And uh, he, looked, he looked particularly Chinese when he was first born. If ever you've seen a picture, you can scroll through my news uh, feed on Facebook. But um, my homepage, whatever it's called. Revealing my age there. Um, <laughs> scroll through my website on Facebook. Um, but it wasn't long before, before, um, before the likeness began to show. And you could t- see his little frown that looked quite a lot like mine and the cowlick, the stupid hairline that he unfortunately has inherited from me. And um, all these things that began to come out, his personality and stuff. And it's quite inevitable. Half of my DNA is in him. And so it's only a matter of time you're going to see something of a family likeness. Now listen, we read earlier that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Which means that Christ has put his DNA in you. He's made you something new. And when you are something new in Christ, that thing that you now are is going to show in time. Maybe not immediately, but it will. And one of those things is that if the Prince of Peace has made you a new creation, he is going to make you a peacemaker. He's going to make you someone who who lives to spread the peace of God in the world. And that that family likeness will have to show. It's all about him. Let me just read you a couple of quotes to finish off because I thought these summed it up so beautifully. Hendrickson writes this. True peacemakers are all those whose leader is the God of peace, who aspire after peace with all men, proclaim the gospel of peace, and pattern their lives after the Prince of Peace. This is a big concept. That's what I've wanted you to grasp today. The peace of God affecting your workplace, affecting your classroom, affecting your family, affecting your friendships, affecting how you raise children one day, affecting how you will relate to your spouse one day, affecting how you give money one day, hopefully now actually, (laughs) affecting everything you do. We are seeking the welfare of God's people and of humanity in general because we are by nature peacemakers and that is how people recognize us as the sons of God another writer put it like this ultimately God will make it manifest to all the universe that we are his children this is one of the things that most shouts to the world who our Lord and Savior is that when they see what we do and that we bring peace wherever we go. Let's pray, shall we? And we're going to take communion. <clears throat> Father, we thank you that, that this call we have is so wonderfully comprehensive. And that to be a peacemaker is to be a world changer. Not in some wishful, airy-fairy, hippie way but in the concrete way 
of day-to-day practical acts that bring the rule of God into the world that you made. And living God, I pray that you would give us more and more grace to be people of peace, to bring peace wherever we are, to bring the presence of Christ into the situations we, in which we find ourselves, Lord. And Lord, may we also enjoy this peace in increasing measure. I pray that where people here are struggling emotionally with stress, with guilt, with anxiety, that they'd be able to look at you again today and receive the peace of Christ into their hearts. Where there's so much uncertainty, come and bring trust and faith in you again. Amen.